civilians were engaged in this everyday kind of war in which they had to be very creative, often just to stay alive. The, you know, the literature on everyday peace has profoundly influenced the multi-track system of diplomacy, whereby diplomatic efforts need to concentrate not just on elite political leaders in their formal and informal capacities, but also civilians. Some people decided that they would try to depoliticize their friendships to preserve the relationship. But that was at the cost of not being able to even talk about some of the things that mattered to them most. I read Everyday War, a book by Professor Greta Lynn Hewlin, uh, who wrote as a result of a long-term research in Donbas, Ukraine. Therefore, the topic, negotiating relationships in collective memories of war and narratives. Greta Lynn Hewlin, my special guest today, is a teaching professor at University of Michigan, and she's interested in international migration, human smuggling and trafficking, and refugee resettlement. This is Thinking Through with LJ, and I'm your host, Leopoldine Geronimo. Greta, welcome, and thank you for making the time. And just so you take it up, why did you write the book, Everyday War? Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here today with you. I wrote the book, Everyday War, because I realized that conventional stories of war are incomplete. So we know a great deal about individuals and their wartime trauma. There's a very rich literature on war in Ukraine as a geopolitical conflict. But as I began speaking with civilians that had been ex affected by the war in Ukraine, um, I realized that they hadn't been sufficiently included. And in a place where I was expecting to find, you know, victims and recipients of humanitarian aid, I found people mobilizing really highly creative ways to respond to the military conflict. So to answer the question, I was, I was motivated to pursue the topic of civilians in war when, during my research, it became so clear how deeply and strategically and deliberately civilians were engaging and responding to the military conflict. So I was less interested in what was being done to people, although of course that is important. And I got very, very interested in how people were acting on their own behalf and on others' behalf. Well, that's interesting. And, and as I was reading the book, um, a lot of concepts in uh, peace building, conflict resolution, has come to light, but in a way that I did not approach them before. You were actually discussing the human being affected by the war, the non-combatants who are kept in a situation where they can't really tell um, what's coming tomorrow, right? Because they are not living the world, they are not in the front line, 
or they do have families. But you say that this book is about the human capacity, I'm quoting, uh, this book is about the human capacity to deliver comfort and care despite or perhaps because of military conflict. I, I wonder how deep can you go to highlight human capacity, comfort, deliver comfort and care. These are uh, elements that do, do not seem to come to light, even though we, we discussed about human humanitarian interventions as we go. Yeah, so I think that civilians were engaged in this everyday kind of war in which they had to be very creative, often just to stay alive. And what I found was that this everyday kind of war produces everyday ethics in a place where people can no longer rely on, you know, transcendental laws or, you know, firmly established moral principles, they needed to improvise. And I found that uh, everyday ethics were mobilized in terms of moral thinking about human vulnerability and the difficult choices that people had to make. And, you know, a very simple example of such a choice would be, should I cook in the shelter for internally displaced people down the street or should I cook for my family in my own home? People in Ukraine were continually confronted with very consequential choices of that nature. And I think another good example might be Pasha. I introduced Pasha in the preface because he was displaced from the conflict in the East when a mortar destroyed his home. He found himself on the outskirts of Kiev trying to rebuild an old shack with his, his wife. And he found that pretty soon the neighbors started to stop by, drop by and ask him what they needed. And soon enough, spare doors, food, you know, windows, spare windows were being dropped off so that they could create a more secure shelter for themselves and, and be fed. And Pasha really opened my eyes to these everyday ethics of care because he said to me, Greta, you know that fear that you could be left without anything. And I, and I said, of course, everybody has felt that at some point in their life. And he said, well, it's gone. So paradoxically, because of his dispossession, and his loss, he became convinced that he was secure, right? He acquired this sense of existential or ontological security that no matter what, other people will take care of us. So that, that's, uh, until then, it was not a relation about uh, an organization leaving this encounter, this in, in invention. It was at the committed level one family to the other, if I understand you correctly. And, and that, that takes me to 
because in, in the book, you, you lay out eight chapters. And in each chapter, there are stories that you brought to life that make the, that conflict in Ukraine uh, have a different face. But still, in the conflict analysis sphere, there is a, a lot of uh, there is a lot going on to analyze the root cause of this conflict that then brought these people to have a very personal experience. Even though the conflict is going on at almost all levels, starting from the frontline military. So, in your perspective, as you see these encounters. How do you argue the root causes of that conflict in Donbas, Ukraine? Mm, mm. That's a really great question. And as you mentioned, it's complex and multi-causal. And it's probably useful from the outset to divide it into two phases. The first phase is with the onset of hostilities in 2014, and that lasts up until February 2022, when we have the full-scale invasion and the international community shifts from calling it a military conflict to calling it a war. So we have these two phases, and it could be really helpful to if we want to understand that first phase that led up to this full-scale war, to begin with the revolution that took place in 2013 and 2014, in which a crucial issue was the direction that the country was taking. And when then-President Yanukovych declined to sign a much-awaited association agreement with the European Union, protesters took to the streets because so many people had awaited this moment of greater European integration. But at that time, Ukraine was not united behind that idea. And in fact, many people disagreed with that uh, westward looking direction for the country because their livelihoods depended on trade with Russia. And Russia had very clearly signaled that uh, Ukraine taking a European direction would be economically very disastrous for, in particular, the Donbass region, which is comprised of two provinces, the Luhansk province and the Donetsk province. So especially there, there were counter demonstrations in favor of becoming more tightly integrated with Russia. Ultimately with Russian assistance, mercenary forces, the infusion of funds, powerful oligarchs, uh, you know, financiers helping, those people gained the upper hand and ultimately um, two republics were declared, right? The Luhansk People's Republic and the Donetsk People's Republic. Ukraine responded with a military um, effort 
to retake that territory. And that was the start of the military conflict. But as you point out, there were a lot of variables that went into it. Um, We could think about uh, regional identity. The people in that eastern part of the country had a very strong regional identity based on their wealth and independence as a rich mining region. Um, The Ukrainian government in Kiev had sent some unfortunate single signals with a draft language law that would have made it uh, much more difficult to operate in Russian, which is, of course, the primary language spoken in the eastern region. That bill was very controversial, and in fact, it never even passed in the Ukrainian parliament. But it did inflame those sentiments that Kiev was meddling in the affairs of the people in the eastern part of the country. And so, yeah, so there's um, there's these economic interests, right? Trade with Russia. There's language. 75% of the population in the eastern part of the country claimed Russian was their primary language. Regional identity. External influences. Russia was highly interested to ensure that those Eastern republics remained loyal to Russia. And so it sent mercenary forces, it infiltrated local structures of governance with loyal cadres to lead those proto republics. Um, And that was what really fueled the military conflict that simmered for eight long years claiming approximately 13,000 lives. That's the official figure. Medics that I spoke with in Ukraine told me that one should probably multiply that figure by seven. So we don't really know the true death toll, but um, that phase lasted eight years. And then with the full-scale invasion in 2022, We have a Russian aggression that really envelops the entire Ukrainian country and has thrown the country into an existential crisis because uh, some 40% of the infrastructure is destroyed, between 20 and 30% of the population is displaced. Uh, Your listeners may have heard about the energy infrastructure being destroyed. Uh, and you know the uh, we don't know a lot about the casualties, but the U.S. estimate is that there are uh, at least 100,000 troop deaths on both the Ukrainian and the Russian side. Those are really big numbers. Not not that the numbers make the difference of the one life that uh, we lost in the war, right? Uh, each of those lives have the equal values, but. At least from what what I read in your book, that's the the sense, um, that's the feeling I had, right? And your experience in the internally displaced um, persons environment, the reason why I ask it, the root cause of the conflict, it sounded, oh, it looked like, although the root causes, um, you lay them down in the introduction, including the economic one and external factors, as you mentioned, but there are those 
conflicts that emerge right there in this space that was created forcedly because of the war. So, um, and, and I would like to have you understanding how does that environment created in internal displaced persons, the encounters of this multicultural setting all, all of a sudden, uh, which is probably a representation of both belligerent identities and cultures, languages that are speaking. How do they engage? I know that we, we planned that we will uh, split, but still within the context of the root causes of this conflict. Mm -hmm. That's a really wonderful question. Uh, I believe that the political conflict spread from a purely political space into personal spaces, right? And the, the, the cover of everyday war tries to, with its, it's a image of a, an apartment where the glass has been broken and then the view to the landscape outside. And it, it seeks to communicate this idea that when there is a political conflict, there's really very little separation between the world of politics and the world of families and friendships, which became uh, extended sites for the working out of these political tensions. And so friendships became among the casualties of the war. So we could think of friendships breaking up around Brexit or friendships in Hong Kong breaking up, or even you know friendships in the United States becoming troubled by political events. And in Ukraine, it was the same. Um, romantic partnerships also reproduce the political conflict at a smaller scale when, you know, whether Donbass should remain a part of a westward-looking Ukraine or align itself more closely with Russia was a question. And so you could think about that political ideological conflict within families as a kind of everyday international relations unfolding inside of homes and cafes. People had a couple different responses to that, um, especially with friendships. You know, some people decided that they would try to depoliticize their friendships to preserve the relationship. But that was at the cost of not being able to even talk about some of the things that mattered to them most. And then other people decided to terminate certain friendships because of those politics with the cost of, of losing important relationships, but perhaps eventually expanding uh, their networks with more like-minded people. And so I think, um, you know, a woman I... I came to know well and Ukraine phrased it well when she described this wonderful friend network that she had that had developed when she was in graduate school and then expanded as this friend group had children and um, 
you know, found partners and then had careers and their, their lives uh, interwove. When the conflict broke out, she had to sever all of those relationships because as she described it, people are like bombs and a single phrase can make them explode. These political issues are so contentious that it's just not possible for me to speak with them anymore. So I think she's a good, uh, her name was Yulia, and she was a really good example of how that played out with friendships. Larissa is a good example of how that played out in families because she was from um, the eastern part of the country. She was from Luhansk, um, had left and lived in a different part of the country, the western part of the country, with her son and her husband. And when the war broke out, her son chose to enlist in this airborne division. Uh, as it turned out, his plane was shot down uh, near the place where they had come from in the east and where Larissa's mother and sister still lived. Now, Larissa explained it to me as the loss of her son would have been painful enough all by itself, but it was made more painful by the fact that her mother had uh, contributed funds to the Russian administration of that republic, and her sister had actually facilitated their rise to power and worked with them. She worked for that administration. And so Larissa held her mother and her sister partly responsible for the death of her son and ultimately decided that it was, she chose not to associate with them anymore. And in fact, although she had identified as Russian throughout her life, Ukraine came first, right? Her country of Ukraine came first. And so the conflict prompted a shift in her identity, as well as very profound changes to her family. As, as you share um, these findings, actually, you are also answering my, um, my next question, partly where I was going to ask if you would share your findings about the interpersonal peace in which you discuss the micropolitics and friendships. So you brought Julia and um, Julia's stories. And, and I, th I think it's worth knowing more to how that applies into a context where the whole world is aware of the conflict, but it's not aware of the details within at the personal level to what exactly is going on. And, and I'm guessing from your experience there, as you, uh, you listen to these stories in the first person, um, the first person telling, there is not much of an international intervention to that particular level, so, which makes it even more difficult. How do you begin to uh, bring a resolution to such level of, of conflicts and tensions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another very important question. 
and I was I was inspired by the literature on everyday peace, which is part of international relations theory that seeks to sort of decenter the state and say we need to take into better account non-state actors because they're so important in contemporary hybrid wars. And so the theory of everyday peace seeks to incorporate civilians and non-state actors in the theory. And I found that really helpful for thinking about Ukraine where people were attempting to maintain an everyday kind of peace. And I think that um, one thing that is important in this regard is the, you know, the literature on everyday peace has profoundly influenced the multi-track system of diplomacy, whereby diplomatic efforts need to concentrate not just on elite political leaders in their formal and informal capacities, but also civilians. However, at this point in time, most of those uh, multi-track diplomacy efforts are very much concentrated like through the channel of non-governmental organizations, which is another reason that it's important also to look at like these interpersonal relationships and people who might not be engaged with a, a non-governmental organization or a peace organization. So if you look at like these micro mechanisms of peace, I do think that they can be leveraged towards greater understanding. And I have a couple of really wonderful examples. Um, a man named Aliag, who was very active in politics in those first years of the war, but ultimately was on the wrong political side, right? He was not on the political side that came to power, but the more uh, Western focused uh, direction was his interest. Um, and so when the new administration came into power, he tried to back away but they still saw him as a terrible threat. And so one morning he opened his door to four men in black balaclavas, all with rifles over their shoulders, who had come to arrest him. They had St. George's ribbons pinned on their civilian clothing to signify their affiliation to Russia, right? That's a Russian patriotic symbol, the orange and black uh, ribbon. He didn't want to invite, he, he didn't want to involve his wife. So he agreed to go with them. But as soon as he was in his front yard, he tried to escape from these four men. They shot him in the back, threw him into a basement jail where he remained for approximately 30 days. Fortunately, they took pity on his wound and he received medical attention, survived the gunshot wound and was eventually released without any conditions. I met him in a shelter far from his hometown and 
I was shocked when he said, I am only happy to converse with them. We chat on the phone periodically. I loaned one of them my car. And I said, what? You loaned him your car? How is this possible? And the way that he explained it to me was that he hoped someday to go back. He thought they were his future neighbors and friends. So he was interested in conflict calming strategies to keep good relations at a very practical level of serving, uh, like, you know, securing the perimeter of his home, taking care of his car, things of that nature. He collaborated with them in the hopes that they could someday be future neighbors. Um, and he also wow. felt that because of his faith, he wasn't the one who should be responsible for some sort of punishment or retribution for what they had done. Now, it would be very interesting to go back and speak with Alieg today because the situation has changed and we're now in a situation in which the Russian forces are committing war crimes and that it raises the conflict to a level of magnitude in which those everyday peace practices are no longer possible or make sense. And as I write in Everyday War, the everyday peace is kind of a luxury that not everybody in Ukraine could afford, even several years ago. And we are just introducing your book, your findings, and we want to go deeper into them on our next two uh, three episodes. But then uh, I take another quote from you. Public and private properties have been redirected to serve internally displaced persons through non-governmental organizations providing, advising, training, and social support. So uh, institutions came in to play their role in this diversified uh, setting of, of people. And in chapter three, you, you brought this content to life. Now, negotiating relationships in such a complicated situation where in one hand you have the international uh, peace building efforts, negotiations going up and down, but they are happening um, at their own pace, military interventions. But what about the negotiations within this family sphere, these people that in one day they decide to protect themselves, to remain alive one more day, they have to choose who to delete from the list of friends or families? Yes, um, I think that non-governmental organizations played a crucial role of supporting people who had been internally displaced and really needed resources to connect them to jobs, to housing, uh, psychosocial support, 
really a whole range of services and resources. So that was, they played an absolutely vital role in helping the internally displaced people. Um, and I think that as it worked out in, in families, you know, sometimes people found ways to bridge gaps, right? And to, to reconnect um, over time, but oftentimes the quality of the relationship had changed. So in Everyday War, I talk about uh, a man named Dimitro who quarreled with his friends, as friends of, you know, decades. And he eventually patched together those friendships to continue relating with them over the phone. But he really mourned the loss of closeness. Um, and so I think that there's always trade-offs in these, in these situations. And I guess I'm trying to think of other examples, but uh, one person that comes to mind is a woman who actually, there, there was this like intersectionality of people always recalibrating their priorities. So one woman told me that um, when the war broke out, she faced a choice. Her husband didn't want to leave. He wanted to stay with his parents who planned to live in the Donetsk People's Republic. But she wanted to get her parents out of the war zone. And ultimately what she chose was to leave with her parents and divorce that husband. So at the moment that I spoke to her, she had found a new person and she was caring for her parents and she was seeking out new career opportunities because the professional profile of people in the Eastern part of the country who worked in metallurgy, mining, industry, factories is very different than in more agricultural parts of Ukraine. Yeah, so she was working hard to create a new career for herself. On the next episode with negotiating relationships in collective memories of war, and narratives, I would like us to uh, discuss the multiple historical, political, ideological narratives of this conflict and how that plays out to the post-traumatic stress disorders that um, it's not much discussed uh, um, again, but we will also uh, understand how the moral sacred interventions those people who care for the dead and despite the side they are from one A or B, but they they're given their lives in the front line to rescue the body of a fallen um, either compatriot or fallen human being. Absolutely. All right, and there we go. Uh, today we introduced a different approach to analyzing conflicts with Greta Lynn Yulin, uh, a distinguished teaching professor at the University of Michigan, 
and I think you will be doing a great favor to your own knowledge map, to your own knowledge upbringing, to buy the book wherever you get your books from. I got mine from both <laughs> hard copy, electronic and audio. I, I had to just to digest it in all the versions I could get and the only versions um, spoke strongly because there was a, a human voice uh, behind it and those stories were brought to life. So I highlight families find um, a way to bridge gaps and remain alive. Thank you, Greta. I'm your host, Leopoldine Geronimo. We'll talk soon on the next episode. Thank you.